0: Good afternoon. It's Friday, the 2nd of October, 2020, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me in the studio today, Patrick Henningsen from 21st Century War. Welcome to the programme, Patrick.
1: Great to be with you, Mike.
0: And joining us via video link is David Ellis from Strategic Defence Initiatives. Uh, But before we get to David, uh, Pat, let's start off with the big news of the day, which, of course, is uh, Donald Trump's tweet, uh, which tonight, as in last night, uh, the First Lady and he tested positive for COVID-19. Uh, They will begin their quarantine and recovery process immediately, he tweeted. Uh, We will get through this together. Uh, What do you make of that? Is this genuine? Is he pulling a Boris? What do you
1: think is going on? What do you mean by pulling a Boris, Mike? No, uh, is it uh, it genuine? uh, Look, you can't ignore, Mike, the optics of this. We're coming into the heat of the election right now, the final home stretch, the last 30 days, and all of a sudden this happens. As we remarked earlier b- before the show, Mike, I think you know from a national security point of view, in a normal situation, this would never be disclosed if you were to test positive for something and not have any symptoms. I assume they're asymptomatic, because we saw him at the debate. He looked absolutely fine mm-hmm. and uh, as boisterous and aggressive as ever, and so did the First Lady. So uh, why would they make the, disclose this now? I can only guess that this is electioneering. Uh, and if you think about it, a 14-day window, Mike, if he comes and emerges from like Lazarus, Lazarus from the cave after fourteen days and his base will be riled up, the rallies, I mean, so this would sort of push him uh, quite strongly uh, towards the finish line uh, in the home stretch of the election. So I mean, that's one possible way we could be looking at it. Mm. But it's really going to also put the Democrats and the liberal, the left, the, uh, the lockdown left on their back heels because they can't accuse Trump of faking it. Because the, the the left and the Democrats are so deeply invested in the COVID narrative, deeply invested in the kind of the, the, the campaign of fear that's been revved up over the last seven years, uh, seven months uh, with Anthony Fauci. Uh, pushing from behind with the pharmaceutical industry. So it's really hamstrung, uh, the Democrats, Mike. Um, they can't make fun and say he's faking it because then they're going to undermine the whole kind of COVID project fear. So this is very interesting.
0: Uh, one of the interesting things I saw in the, in the press this morning was uh, comments about the, the markets. Now, the markets have uh, fallen today, 1.1% in London, uh, 1.4% in Germany, uh, 1.4% in Paris. Um, And the response to this from analysts was that this is the last of the Biden pricing getting done. So so the way that the markets have responded to this is that they see this as being, uh, as pushing Biden forward and potentially uh, more likely to become president. And so that has immediately caused the markets to to, to collapse to a certain degree because they are clearly concerned about Joe Biden becoming president. And that says a lot about what the markets think about Trump as well.
1: That's what they call pricing in, right? Pricing in the news. So this is a a common term you'll see with financial analysts, Mike. So the only thing that the Biden campaign can counter with here, strangely enough, is if Joe Biden announces that he's tested positive for COVID. So what Trump has done now is he's, he's sucked the energy into his lane in terms of the news cycle, which is what the Trump campaign has always been masterful at. And so he's done it once again. So whether it's real or not is anybody's guess. I mean, he could have tested PCR positive, but I'm looking at this as an election, uh, definitely an election move that can be leveraged. We don't know what the truth of it is or not, but it can absolutely be leveraged by the Trump campaign.
0: Okay, so let's come back to the UK then. And, uh, well, the empty uh, chamber, the empty houses of, House of Commons, Uh, Of course, the Coronavirus Act was uh, being voted on for its extension. Uh, That uh, passed with not so much as a whimper, 334 extending the Coronavirus Act, 24 against. So the question is, where is the opposition? Um, Before this vote was taken, there were supposed to be 80 Tories, 100 Tories that were going to uh, rebel. Uh, But uh, Boris Johnson... Uh, in the face of that threat of rebellion, has done a deal. So this was about uh, the the Sir Graham Brady Amendment. Uh, If that had passed, it would have forced the government to put future COVID-19 decisions to a parliamentary vote. Uh, Well, then Boris has sort of caved in on that a little bit. Uh, The rebels uh, with the opposition parties, really, well, that's what's being said, uh, are angry that uh, restrictions have been implemented without being debated. And of course, uh, Patrick, we've been talking about this over the last number of programmes, because what the way that most of these uh, uh, new regulations are being implemented is through secondary le- legislation, so-called statutory instruments, uh, which uh, ministers are uh, claiming for themselves on the basis of, of certain historical legislation. It's not really coming uh, to Parliament for review and in fact I think it was on Monday's programme David Scott was making the point that the most recent statutory instrument had been laid before Parliament on a Sunday when of course com- the Commons isn't sitting. Um, so this is ridiculous but if you're paying attention there to what I said, uh, 300 votes for 24 votes again. So the question is where is the missing 300? This. I hope David might have something to say about this, but to me, this is unprecedented that 300 members of parliament did not turn up to vote in either direction
1: for this. For what historically might be, Mike, one of the most important uh, legislative uh, sessions maybe in in modern history, if you think about the ramifications of it, if you think at what's at stake in terms of precedent. From a constitutional point of view, uh, you know, as as the uh, uh, Walker, uh, vice chairman of the 19 two, 1922. 1922 committee, uh, remarked in his... Uh, well, we're going to see that in a second. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, this is hugely important. Where, how could you abscond uh, in terms of voting? I mean, who's being counted in terms of members of parliament on this issue? This is a massive... Uh, story, uh, in our opinion.
0: Right. So, absolutely, this is a massive story. Now, uh, just to answer the person in the chat box, these were not abstentions. These were people that did not turn up to vote. Um, So let's uh, have a look here at what uh, Matt Hancock had said. He said, we will consult Parliament and wherever possible, we will hold votes before such regulations come into force. So this was the government attempting to respond to the criticism, wherever possible, is what he said. This is pretty vague, it's not really much of a deal, but you mentioned uh, Sir Charles Walker uh, a second ago, Patrick. Uh, the, the vote, or, sorry, the, the debate on this uh, bill and whether, the, sorry, this act and whether it would be renewed or not, because if you remember, it was required to be renewed every six months, uh, didn't get very much time in the House of Commons. Um, and uh, Sir Christopher Walker was not very happy. Have a listen to this.
2: 90 minutes. 90 minutes to debate, the renewal of an act that fundamentally has changed the nature of the relationship between the state and citizens is not good enough. And I have to say, if this is the portent of the promises to come, it's not good enough. I need, at some stage, more than three minutes to discuss the fundamental hardships that are going on on in my constituency the jobs that are being lost, the opportunities that are being lost, young people struggling to find work to get back to university, to come back from university. 90 minutes, 90 minutes is an utter, utter disgrace. It is actually disrespectful to this house and it is disrespectful to colleagues. And I'm sorry, Secretary of State, if I sound Actually, I'm not sorry that I'm angry because a lot of people in this place are angry. We want to see this virus beaten, of course we do, but it would be nice, just nice, if this house was shown some respect.
0: So he held it together pretty well right until the end, Patrick, but that was a man who was pretty angry. Um, and so he's got lots to be angry about. 90 minutes to debate, that's three minutes each to speak, 300 MPs. Who didn't turn up to vote, and the question is why? Now, of course, there is an, an arrangement. That, remember, this was not abstentions, but there is an arrangement. It's called pairing. Uh, but if we go back to 2017, here's the uh, Financial Times making the point that pairing, the pairing arrangements, had been cancelled. Now, the way that this works is that if, if for example, somebody's ill and they can't get into parliament or they're pregnant and they're having a baby or whatever, uh, the idea is that if you're voting one way in a parliamentary vote, uh, you, through the whips, you can arrange with somebody who's voting the other way that neither of you turns up, your votes are cancelled out, therefore. Uh, now, occasionally over the years, this has been uh, subverted. Uh, and in fact, that subversion in one case resulted in uh, a, a, a British government collapsing. But nonetheless, in 2017, this arrangement was cancelled. Now, I haven't been able to find anything which tells me that that was reinstated at the end of the 2017 to 2019 uh, parliamentary session.
1: It may well be. We're still looking. So if if anyone has any information about that. Absolutely.
0: So we're putting a question mark on this. Uh, But uh, David, let me bring you onto the programme at this point uh, and say welcome. And and I'm just really interested to get your thoughts on this situation because first of all, uh, this is what what we're witnessing here with respect to, and in fact, this process began not with coronavirus, it actually began with Brexit, this process of sidelining parliament. We are seeing the fundamental change in the relationship between the state and us as individuals. um, And we're seeing parliament being sidelined by a a, a a dictatorial executive, um, and we're seeing uh, now it seems MPs um, absolutely stepping back from their role as MPs. Whether that's because they were too scared to vote against the whips, or because they w- they were uh, there was some kind of pairing agreement. This is still to be understood.
3: To be but the outrage really is uh, that Charles Walker. There, needs... I mean, he's only got part of the story, hasn't he? The focus has to be on the fact that 300 MPs didn't turn up to do anything. So Parliament is being subverted. Parliament is being sidelined. The government is effectively giving Parliament and the MPs a P45. You know, they really need to wake up. But this is a twofold process. The general public are actually the ones that have been betrayed. That have voted for these MPs that purport to represent them, because there's the failure, the democratic failure is there. So I find this very, you know, I've, there's the focus of the outrage and the anger it needs to come from the public back onto the MPs. You have failed to do your job, which is to represent us and protect our rights, privileges, and freedoms. Absolute failure. Now, what I find. Um, Shocking with this. So we've got another one of these Brexit organisations has just put this this out. And I've focused on this because it kind of it's re, it's sort of going along the same lines there as we've seen from a lot of those MPs. And we've we've not really had the backup from the Speaker. You know that has you know his conduct hasn't been really satisfactory to make sure that Parliament does its job. But the MPs thereby have to do their job, and they haven't clearly. 300 of them have failed to do their job. So we've got Jonathan Isby here who's written um, an arguing on a new Brexit group by the look of it called a Politia. And he's saying that, he, that the democratic outrage is that ministers have been able to introduce new laws restricting our freedom without recourse or debate or a vote on these measures in Parliament. Well, actually, that's not really it, is it? Well, to an extent, ministers have done it. But the outrage is the MPs have failed as a whole. There is the outrage and the public need to focus on the fact that their MP, whoever it is, has let them down. The government is simply trying it on. Uh, so, you know, I think, you know, credit to Sir Charles and a few of the others in there and the 24 that voted against But that clearly what that needed was a majority to go in there and vote this down and stop it. It's very simple. If Parliament doesn't like it, the people don't like it, and the MPs don't like it, they just say no.
0: Well, well, that that indeed should be it. Now, just for the record, let's just look at who did vote against this. The Tories that voted against the whip were Peter Bone, Philip Davies, Philip Hollowbone, uh, Esther McVeigh, Desmond Swain, Charles Walker and William Ragg. Uh, On the Labour side, we'd Rebecca Long-Bailey, Don Butler, Kevin Jones, John Speller, uh, Graham Stringer and Derek Twigg. uh, And then Caroline Lucas, who's, of course, Green Party, she voted against. And all, all the Lib Dem MPs voted against extending the legislation so that's who voted against. Now, David just mentioned the fact that the Speaker isn't doing his job or uh, not doing a very good job at the moment. Here he is, Lindsay Hoyle. Uh, the way in which government has exercised its power to make secretary legislation d- during this crisis has been totally unsatisfactory. But the, So he is, he is speaking out against it, but he's not acting. Uh, he is refusing to... Uh, f- he is concerned that he would be perceived as uh, being another John Bercow, and he's scared therefore to, to proceed with the uh, with, with to allow amendments and allow emergency votes and so on but the threat from him is there and so he probably needs a little bit of encouragement and maybe we need to be encouraging him uh, to get involved in that um, so David just uh, just briefly finally on on Lindsay Hoyle um, he has expressed concern about uh, being perceived as being like John Burko. This isn't really the way to do business. He's got to uphold the parliamentary rules and he's got to stand up for Parliament. That is his job.
3: I absolutely agree. Uh, but what has to happen, that's, that's brilliant, that has to happen. But what also has to happen is that there needs to be a volume of MPs press this with him, with the Speaker, to say No. Yeah, it's that straightforward. The public pressure needs to go onto the MPs. This is unacceptable. You are allowing government to run amok, and they are effectively now, as the, as so as it's been said in there, and there's a few MPs that have said it, that this is becoming dictatorial, and that's quite that is correct. It is, you know, making st- secondary instruments on a Sunday evening at at 7pm or something or other should should let leave nobody in any misapprehension is just what the status of affairs is. But this is where, the, you know, this is where the focus has got to go. Public to the MPs, MP into the House and the Speaker, and they have got to muster and say no. Yeah, This carries on much longer. We won't have a functioning democracy or a functioning that won't be a government. It'll be something else. Uh, well, I think
0: we're already at that point, David. Sorry, Patrick. And I just
1: want to add, you know, I think it's incumbent on people who are constituents to find out, you know, where your uh, MP was uh, during this vote. Yes. Uh, and 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 to to further on to what David said, n- not just even if they're voting it down, but even if they're voting in support of it, it would be good for constituents to know where their member of parliament stands, one way or the other. Isn't that how democracy is supposed to work? And uh, right now we have this giant black hole. This is just gaping uh, void in terms of knowing where where people stand on this, what could be historically one of the most important constitutional uh, pieces of legislation ever.
0: Uh, Now, of course, uh, the UK column has been somewhat critical over the last uh, period of the devolution process and and the the policies behind that or the reasons behind that devolution process. Sometimes devolution doesn't go uh, terribly to plan as far as the government is concerned. Uh, And so we've got to say well done to uh, Andy Preston. Uh, the uh, Middlesbrough mayor, uh, who tweeted this out. "Uh, Government restrictions are unacceptable. We tried to communicate with government, but they didn't listen. Uh, They're imposing restrictions that will kill viable jobs and damage mental health. I do not accept the government's intended restrictions. They're based on ignorance updates to follow. Um, So uh, he pushed out uh, a little video clip uh, with this tweet. So let's just have a listen to what he said.
2: Hi, the government's just made an announcement about strict measures coming into Middlesbrough and Hartlepool. I have to tell you uh, that I think this measure has been introduced based on factual accuracies and a monstrous and frightening lack of communication and s- ignorance. I don't accept uh, the statement at all, I don't accept the measures, we need to talk to government they need to understand our local knowledge, expertise and ability to get things done and preserve jobs and well-being. We're really disappointed. We're, as things stand, we defy the government and we do not accept these measures. We need to get COVID under control and we need to work with people to find a way of preserving jobs mental health.
0: Okay, so, so he's ref- absolutely refusing to comply unless unless uh, it becomes a legal requirement for him to comply.
1: Um, but, but his last, his last uh, sentence was telling Mike, he says, we need to get COVID under control. And although I, we absolutely agree with everything that he said, we keep hearing this caveat, whether it's from uh, Vice Chairman Walker from the 1922 Committee or from this gentleman here, we need to get COVID under control. Uh, COVID doesn't need to get under control. If you look at the data and the science, Covid is uh, already under control. It's it's no longer a pandemic. That's what the data is telling us. That's what the Center for Evidence Based Medicine is telling us. This is what the National Statistics Office is telling us in terms of hospitalizations and deaths. Mike.
0: Uh, okay, so this is a very good point. So he is taking a stand here, but in a sense, as you point out, he's only taking half a stand because he's still buying into the into the narrative. Yeah. He's got to take. He's got to take the, the the full stand now. He did mm. uh, publish an article in the Mail. Uh, here it is. New COVID rules are unjust, cruel and illogical. Middlesbrough Mayor Andy Preston explains why he rejects local lockdown measures being imposed on the city. So he has written this article uh, and he's saying, people in my town are frustrated, angry and uh, dismayed at the government's draconian proposals to impose even more oppressive local restrictions. There's nothing compassionate or pragmatic about what Health Secretary Matt Hancock intends to do. It's badly thought out, illogical, and despite what the government claimed yesterday, it's not based on consultation with councils or local experts. Uh, He said, of course, stopping the spread of the virus has to be the government's priority. So that's your point, Patrick. Uh, But this must be done with an awareness of the pain and isolation that uh, that isolation can can inflict and the damage it does to mental and physical health. Above all, for God's sake, he said, uh, we have to do everything possible to preserve people's livelihoods. Uh, He said to me, it's obvious that anyone should be allowed to visit a relative or a friend in their garden, have a cup of coffee while remaining well distanced. And of course, we should be able to meet them for a chat at a well-run socially distanced coffee shop. So again, it it all comes with caveats. But nonetheless, he is taking a stand um, and... Absolutely critical in this article of the so-called science behind what Boris is doing.
1: And, and by the way, the, twi- the tweet that we just showed uh, from uh, Preston had a Donald Trump uh, profile yeah, icon. That, on. That's a mistake. That yes, was so just a carry-on yeah, from the previous yeah, it slide. Was, so yes, yes, That, that wasn't it Preston's wasn't his Twitter, actual profile. Twitter
0: profile. <laughs> photo. No, that's true. That's true. Uh, now, let's stick with the mainstream press here for a second. And uh, an absolutely spectacular article in The Express uh, from Frederick Forsyth. Uh, Boris Johnson has become the servant of incompetent scientists, says Frederick Forsyth. Uh, He says, over a span of 60 years as a journalist, covering mainly general news in a dozen countries, I've become intrigued by a study of how uh, humans are actually governed. Uh, At the optimum end is the elective parliamentary democracy. Uh, which Britain once was. At the worst end is the ruthless dictatorship into which we are slowly converting. Weirdly, with the shivering consent of an apparent majority of our people in this transformation, there are always five steps. Uh, So let's just look at the five steps that he's talking about here. Um, So the first one is this. A small group takes over, the community taking over. All the arms of government is always numerically tiny. Uh, He says uh, uh, the creation of a nationwide campaign of fear terror is necessary, Uh, though little understood at first. It has now become plain that COVID, uh, though blistering fast contagion, has a very low lethality rate, but too late. Uh, Number three, uh, when people are badly frightened, they're extremely gullible. Uh, We have all lived through seven months of unrelenting propaganda on radio, TV, speeches from on high and placards in the press uh, to convince us that death stalks at our side, figures are cooked, statistics cobbled, research uh, stultified and uh, to endorse the death is everywhere message. Uh, Number four, assurance from the tiny group that they and only they can save us, Uh, but only if we abide by and obey a tidal wave of rules and regulations, no matter if these destroy the nation we once knew and loved. Fear deliberately inspired, fear rules supreme. And finally, the fifth point then, creation of a sort of secret police to spy, pounce and punish. Uh, There will always be dissenters, he says. Uh, who must be dealt with, as I witnessed years ago in my year in East Berlin. Back then, it was estimated that a full third of East Germans spied on and informed on neighbours for the Stasi. This Boris Johnson uh, has now encouraged us to adopt uh, as a lifestyle. Uh, And David, uh, this is a pretty incredible article. It absolutely hits the spot. He's
3: absolutely framed it. Uh, perfectly as to what the situation is, and even give everyone the sort of working schematics and schedule. Of course, uh, Frederick is a a, a a fantastic writer on the one hand, but on the other hand, of course, this is his subject. He knows all about this sort of stuff because of what he's done in the, you know done in the past. You know, and for it to come out in in the Express it's absolutely fantastic. Um, so can I suggest and recommend to everyone that they propagate this as widely as they possibly can. And if they feel, you know, if people feel minded, would they write to Gary Jones in at the Express there and say, well done, Freddie Forsyth, for actually saying it just exactly how it is.
0: Um, and uh, Patrick, uh, any thoughts on this? Just well, before I finish this. Uh...
1: Well, I do, I do, Mike. Uh, what you just showed there in terms of the five steps uh, to a totalitarian takeover that uh, Freddie Forsyth laid out quite eloquently if you look across the channel to the continent look at what is happening right now in Spain we've been on Mm -hmm. the phone uh, to people in Spain this week we will share some of that information uh, in the subsequent programs with the UK column but they have gone absolutely down the Alice in Wonderland uh, rabbit hole with regard to masks fines People snitching on each other. I mean, absolute horror stories that we're getting from Spain uh, to the point where uh, people are absolutely uh, terrified to do or break the rules. And they're terrified about what their neighbors or people will say. There's businesses that are being threatened with shutdown if A, one of the employees tests positive for COVID or a customer, God forbid, comes in without a mask mm. into a restaurant. I mean, so so you're getting a, a Eastern European type flavor of people settling scores, old scores through the current crisis. That's what happened in Eastern Europe, getting snitching on someone to get their business shut down and just absolute terror and fear. So this is what's happening in Europe in some places. Is this what the British government want to have happen uh, in the UK? Is is that that the optimum environment for enforcing the COVID culture, to have that type of a situation, that atmosphere, Mm. like they have in Spain? I I certainly hope that's not what people want to see.
0: Uh, uh Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Now, uh, yesterday, David, uh, yesterday, you interviewed uh, Anne Whittigam, uh former Brexit Party MEP, and of course, also a former Conservative Party Shadow Home Secretary. Uh, now, we've just got a little bit of uh, uh, video from this. But one thing that struck me, David, and we'll, we'll get your comments on this after we watch the little video clip, is um, Actually, she's recognising the same things that uh, Frederick for Frederick Forsyth uh, is writing about in The Express. So let's just have a quick listen to this.
2: I absolutely would not support the military uh, assisting the police in keeping civil law in this country. That's not their role. However, it sounds like a last chance saloon when you throw in the squaddies to, to go alongside the police. And the ability of... of People being told to snitch on their neighbours, you know. We're running a quasi-stasi here. We're not seeing cabinet government at the moment. What we're seeing is a dictatorship of a few uh, under emergency powers.
0: So a dictatorship of a few, David, under emergency powers?
3: You, You cannot underestimate the strengths of what Anne and Rusty were talking about there. They're, they're absolutely in parallel with Frederick Forsyth with how they see the, cur- this, the current situation. The important thing to bear in mind here is that Anne has been in cabinet government and held numerous, numerous portfolios. She's also been shadow home secretary. This is somebody that knows how the system works and she knows how the engineering works both to do it and both to undo it. That's the key thing here, is that she's come at this. She's absolutely pulled no punches. It's a fantastic interview. Um, please go and watch it, because what she's got to say is very, very important. There's some really explosive comments in there. Uh, I think particularly the one that, that that really struck home for me was the, the dictatorship of the few and the Stasi state. Uh, but the fact that we've done this sort of, you know, and it, you would think it was scripted, but it wasn't, that Freddie there has come in and in exactly the same fashion Uh, It's very timely because what it suggests is a lot, we're not on our own seeing it like this. A lot of other people are seeing it as well, but what we have to do, we come back to those MPs again, is they have to do their job. And if they don't do their job, they've got to be pushed to do their job. And, you know, we're, we're in such a dangerous position now with this that it really cannot be understated just how, how, um, Precarious, what you know, what, what our country, uh, our country's democracy, that we think we're in, actually isn't.
0: Yeah. Um, well, look, uh, David, that was a really, it, it is a really interesting conversation you had with Anne Whittingham yesterday. I do recommend, as you say, that people not only watch it but share it as widely as possible. Uh, it's on the UK Column YouTube channel at the moment. It'll be on the website uh, shortly after this news broadcast. Uh, do get it out as widely as possible. Now, uh, speaking of dictatorships, uh, Patrick, uh, of course, the Julian Assange trial has been going on. Uh, Defence witnesses have been uh, heard over the last couple of weeks. A delay for apparent COVID scare, as we reported a week or two ago. Um, But the final defence witness has now been heard.
1: That's right. So they've they've finished the defence testimonies uh, in support of Julian Assange and so the uh, judge uh, Vanessa Beretser has announced that they will be uh, rendering a decision with regards to Assange's ex- extradition to the United States whether Britain's going to do it or not on January the 4th uh, 2021 so a New Year's Eve a surprise or a, a total defeat uh, for the supporters of Julian Assange, uh, we'll see what the decision's going to be. Uh, so in the meantime, you know, the question then, Mike, is does this give an advantage to the prosecution or does this give an advantage uh, to the defense, uh, this, this lag time of uh, two or three months uh, before the decision takes place? But
0: obviously he's gonna stay in prison over that period of time. Yes,
1: Maybe. unconvicted and uncharged. So uh, this is unprecedented in uh, justice history that somebody this uh, not charged, not convicted, is sitting in a maximum security prison now for uh, going on two years. Uh, So this is absolutely incredible. So a lot of people will say that uh, the the British government is acting as a stooge for Washington uh, in this particular case, but so many uh, fantastic witness testimonies were aired uh, in the previous two weeks that showed the absolute political nature. Uh, the CIA spying on the defense team, uh, the bugging, the surveillance, mm. the a kidnapping plot as well uh, using a, a connected security services that's, that's contracting for the CIA. I mean, so anybody would look at all of this, the totality of this and say, there's no way we can allow the U.S. to extradite this person to the United States for, you know, 18 trumped up superseding indictments uh, in 170 years in a federal Uh, prison, knowing that what we know with the evidence that was presented over the last three weeks. So the question is, are they still going to do it? Is the British government going to do it? Is this court, this judge going to do it anyway? That's the big question.
0: Uh, Now, of course, she has uh, decided to uh, announce the extradition decision on January the 4th. That's related to the U.S. general election because uh, they stated that they weren't going to make any decisions until the result of the general election was... uh, was made clear. Um, just remind me, what's the, what's the date of the inauguration of the next president?
1: Um, that's normally in the one of the, the sec, second to the last week of January. Right. So around January twentieth, twenty-first, or something like that, give or take a few days, depending on where uh, the the day falls on the calendar, Mike. So, but uh, but it is interesting. We might not know the result of the 2020 election. Uh, right after on the way it's looking now the way the, and we will obviously there's something to talk about on another program Yes, uh, but the Democrats have made it clear that they will not be accepting the result of the election either way and They will fight 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 in terms of recounts and it might go all the way to the Supreme Court That process in 2000 between Gore and Bush that brought things right up to the new year mm. uh, in terms of decisions, so the country was in effectively in limbo right up till around the Christmas period. So it could even go further than that in this case because it could be more of a widespread controversy, not just involving one state's recounts, Mike, but multiple states Mm -hmm. that are going to hold it up because of postal votes uh, coming in late, and then there'll be rioting and demonstrations and all bets are off at that point. So this could actually have an effect politically on the decision, uh, the British decision to extradite or not Julian Assange.
0: Okay, now, if you like what uh, the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community and their options to help us out there. Uh, where does that take us, Patrick? Uh, Armenia?
1: Well, well, it's been a while, but uh, it's always good to have a war on the cards. And uh, we say, yes, this is a war. Our Armenia versus Azerbaijan, uh, as this headline here from the FT Martial law has been declared in both countries, Uh, jets have been shot down uh, and Turkey is involved. We'll explain some of the dynamics of this. So this is an old territorial uh, dispute over the territory of Nagorno-Karabakh. And so let's look at what's at play here. This is a general map of the region uh, in terms of the Middle East, the Mediterranean uh, here, and also the uh, Caucasian steppes. There's Turkey. And so what we're looking at here is this. Uh, the area which is just next to northeastern Turkey, Armenia and Azerbaijan, the disputed territory. Let's blow that up and take a closer look at that. Uh, there we go. Uh, Nagorno-Karabakh, and uh, so the Armenian forces have moved in to occupy parts of Azerbaijan there. And again, this is an age-old, so the, the border drawing of World War I mm-hmm. continues to haunt the modern world Uh, and so they've left these ethnic enclaves uh, here uh, to be disputed over in the future. And so let's look uh, here at how this is lining up in terms of the uh, geopolitics, Mike. Uh, So there's not just a few parties involved here, there's many parties involved. Let's look at how this sizes up in terms of support. So on the Armenian side, you've got Russia, they're involved in a defense pact with Armenia And then you've got Iran really uh, throwing their support, it seems, behind Armenia right now. Syria, of course, uh, a near neighbor, but with a, a large Armenian diaspora in the country of Syria, very established in Aleppo and so forth there. Probably going to support Armenia there now. Where's the US stand? The US is playing kind of in the background on this There's a big very influential and quite powerful uh, politically uh, Armenian uh, Expat and diaspora community in the United States, especially in California So an election issue again potentially potentially an election issue because guess what a lot of Armenians uh, do tend to vote Republican uh-huh. in America, so this is interesting how this is shaping up and Israel, I put a question mark, Mike, because Armenia is getting arms from Israel. Okay, so, but Israeli isn't really front and center in terms of political support on this, but they're definitely shipping them arms. So this is a, a very strange setup here. That's the Collective Security Treaty Organization. That's what Russia is involved with, with Armenia. So this is a type of a NATO
0: style organization yeah, yeah
1: and yeah. it's really a grandfathered in from the soviet union because of course mm-hmm. armenia used to be within as azerbaijan was within the soviet orbit there now on the aziri side you've got turkey absolutely supporting giving military support and i'm going to say this is controversial but technically and we'll explain this in a minute you, they've got al-qaeda on their side and we'll explain what that means theoretically that means isis could also be And people might think this is a joke. No, this is not a joke. This is dead serious because if this escalates, you will have the jihadi militant um, aspect to it as well that you just can't deny it's going to happen. Mm -hmm. Soldiers of fortune will be moved into position. Where does the United States stand with regards to its loyalty? To Azerbaijan in this case, they've been courting. This is is a Cold War. This is a Cold War frontline playground here between East and West. Uh, Azerbaijan is absolutely, it's a tug of war. that has been going on for decades. And so NATO, if Turkey is involved, Mike, directly, then how long until NATO is? So we'll put those two flags next to each other because they've worked so well together. In Syria. NATO and Al Qaeda and ISIS have, have worked hand in hand like a horse and carriage in Syria. So, I mean, we're, we're saying this in jest, but we're dead serious, in fact. Mm. And uh, I'll show you just how serious it gets look at this story here this is from the investigative journal Turkey's Syrian mercenaries in Azerbaijan feel tricked as bodies pile up here and so it's uh, it's heartening to know Mike as tourism has been decimated during the COVID crisis the jihadi express is running multiple flights every day so Turkey is uh, facilitating the movement of jihadis from Syria uh, into the front lines of Azerbaijan and now
0: so is this, go- is this how they're going to solve the Idlib problem? By getting everybody on flights from Idlib into Azerbaijan?
1: Well, they've already been doing that with, with, with Libya as well. And we'll get into the geopolitics of Turkey's uh, ambitions here. But they're complaining, saying people are dead, torn to pieces. There are 35 people we don't even know anything about. So a, a quote Syrian military, militant in Azerbaijan yeah here speaking to this uh, press, this journalist here. Now, uh, the, the point is, I put Syria in quotes there because these Syrian militants who have left Turkey uh, they're, they're part of the Free Syrian Army, they rebranded to call themselves the Syrian National Army, but they're really based in Turkey. Mm. So, but they're not really Syrian anymore because the government in Damascus has completely disowned them. They probably won't even recognize their passports or their nationality anymore. Mm. So they're not Syrian militants anymore, they're actually uh, Turkey. They're all ex-Nusra, uh, ex-FSA, ex-Al Qaeda, but not ex. They're, they're, they're uh, Islamists uh, really at heart here. And so it's, it's all getting a bit confusing and you're probably at home thinking, oh God, another geopolitical story, what's it all about? <laughs> so let's explain. If we really want to know what it's all about, we, w- let's look at what the security services are saying about this. And to know what the security services are saying, Mike, you want to go to the UK's deep state in-house newsletter which is also known as the Guardian newspaper. And look at the headline that they're running here, and this pretty much tells you the subtext of this whole plot. Syrian rebel fighters prepare to deploy to Azerbaijan in sign of Turkey's ambition. Deploy,
0: deploy, they use the word deploy with a national military. This is something that, that, you know, this is a word that goes with national militaries. And we're talking about... Terrorists here.
1: Yeah, and of course uh, using the term rebel which is uh, the prescribed term that the British government in the US will use For al-Qaeda fighters al-nusra fighters and even former Isis fighters and there are Isis fighters mm. within the ranks there We've already proven that journalists have shown in their work that this is the exactly the case And so but you can see it's all about Turkey's ambition. So it's nothing about an aggression or using uh, Al Qaeda forces uh, for another uh, proxy messy war. A repeat of Idlib in Syria, basically, is what could be shaping up uh, in in Nagorno-Karabakh between uh, Armenia and Azerbaijan. So The the Guardian spun it. So you already know what the UK position is just by reading The Guardian. That's a little pro-tip for anybody out there. If you really want to know what the the UK government's position is uh, geopolitically, just go read The Guardian and uh, look at their journalism. So let's look a, a little bit closer here. What's it really all about? Well, this is what it's all about, neo-Ottomanism. There's President Erdogan from Turkey. And if you look at what's happened over the last couple of years, the trend is absolutely undeniable. First, moving troops and into Syria, taking territory in, deeply into Syria, in fact, in, deeply into northeastern Syria, Idlib, uh, and Afrin and all these uh, areas in Syria that have been occupied at one point or another either by Turkish forces or by al-Qaeda proxies that are being managed by the Turkish government. By the way, that's a NATO member country mm-hmm. running al-Qaeda uh, uh, paramilitaries, just so people know. So that's the first one there in 2011. And then later, mm-hmm. Turkey has done incursions deep into Iraq uh, to you know, basically stamp their foot down uh, around Iraqi Kurdistan and, uh, you know, flex their muscles regionally. And also in 2017, Turkey deployed 3,000 uh, troops uh, to Qatar uh, during the, sort of the Saudi-Qatar uh, split there, uh, the, that Gulf split, that family split in the Gulf. So Turkey extended its influence, and they do have a permanent presence uh, in Qatar right now, and most recently, of course, in Libya. Uh, large amounts of Turkish forces and assets deployed to Libya as well as the quote Syrian rebels that the Guardian's referring to were also deployed in large numbers in Libya too so the whole picture here Mike is neo-Ottomanism this is Turkey uh, what we believe it's Turkey trying to extend its influence as a regional player uh, as possibly in the future a global player this is the vision of President Erdogan is mm-hmm. to reestablish Turkey and to bring the national pride back. Like we said before, it's like MAGA uh, for Turkey, so make Turkey great again. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, a very similar kind of uh, campaign, nationalist campaign that uh, Donald Trump uh, has been running since 2016. So let's take a closer look at this this neo-Ottomanism, and of course, most recently here, Mike, to Armenia. So that's one, two, three, four, five. Uh, deployments uh, in, the, in, in Turkey's orbit there so I mean if it's once it's a fluke if it's twice it's a possible trend if it's five times it's it, there's definitely ambitions there to to basically project power in the region so but wh- where, where does this leave the UK what how, how's the UK what side are they going to take on this certainly they're with NATO so we've, we've established that um, and no doubt they're in the background Uh, collecting, you know, signals intelligence for for the U.S., for NATO, and things like that. But here, this is interesting. This is the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, with President Erdogan. And this is what President Erdogan said back in 2016. Uh, There's a bit of Turkishness in Boris Johnson. Now, people might write this off as insignificant as a kind of a quip, But this is quite serious in terms of uh, how Turkey might view the UK as an ally or a partner if things escalate in the Armenian-Iseri conflict that they've already started in the last two weeks. And so we have to look at maybe Boris's family history here. It's a very interesting family history. This is Boris Johnson's great-grandfather, his paternal great-grandfather. His name is Ali Kamal. And uh, so he fled to... The UK I believe in 1912 uh, escaping uh, from what was uh, boiling up to be the revolution there uh, in Turkey and so he has pedigree Mike uh, you know his heritage is Turkish Boris Johnson and people are probably wondering how come his name isn't uh, is his name Johnson if he's as well there's a, there's a story behind that the stage name as many have remarked is Boris Johnson but that's not Boris's real name his real name is alexander boris the johnson so it's alexander johnson but actually that name johnson was a recent addition uh, to the family tree uh, in fact it, boris's grandfather osman changed his name from kamal to johnson and so stanley his father uh his his, his stanley's father osman had uh, changed the family name so in an alternate universe mike he would be known as Boris would be Al Kamal, basically. We're just little tongue in cheek there in an alternate universe. Mm-hmm. So, but isn't it, isn't it incredible uh, how hard it is to, to, pin, to pin Boris down on so many different issues? Uh, he seems to oscillate and he's very good at oscillating uh, between all of these different issues when he was foreign minister and now as prime minister. Who is Boris Johnson? This is the question. What does he believe in? What does he stand for? Um, would he ally with Erdogan in a war, in an Armenian Azeri war? These are legitimate questions right now because this could escalate into a big East West Russia versus NATO type situation if it continues on the trajectory it's at now. Uh,
0: David, let me ask you what you think about that, what P- Patrick's just presented. Who is Boris Johnson?
3: I, I, who is Boris Johnson? I mean, yeah, great question. That, that's really great work collecting all um, that. Off to you I can come at this from a from a couple of angles
2: uh,
3: Turkey has always been the hinge between east and west so you know it's been in you know and there's been obviously you know a lot of ebbing and flowing over the last sort of five years particularly with brexit and we're now seeing the 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 the, the unified the fully unified and soon to be armed European Union that's that sort of has this Geographical same hinge point there of Turkey to the east. So what we've what we've got going on here on, on two levels is that the the super t- superpower competition between America, uh, NATO, and Russia and China is that at the moment there can't be a shooting war between those superpowers because the West uh tactically cannot engage with Russia and China because of the, they're outgunned with hypersonic missiles. So they only have one default position, which is nuclear weapons. And that's clearly, you know, hopefully not an option. You know, no one can rule that out, but it's hopefully not an option. And that's why there isn't going to be a shooting war. But just to come back to a sort of a couple of key data points here, that when the Soviet Union sort of changed direction in, in 89, um the biggest lie that was per- per- perpetuated in the west was that the soviet union and the cold war was over now that's an utter nonsense because that issue that was called the cold war was about nuclear weapons and the nuclear weapons always existed all the way through whatever that change process was russia still had them and the West still had the America and Britain and everybody else still had them, so that never changed. So to say it was over was really a misrepresentation of what was going on. What it did is it just changed direction. So the superpower competition that's going on now is really being played out through proxy war and hybrid warfare in these in these areas, because it's the only way that you can that anything you know that there can be any kind of um, activity. There can't be a full on shooting war between America and Russia. You know that's what I'm told by the senior officers and the senior defence advisers. That's their take from Western things. But the problem is, of course, is that Russia has never given up its ability of its chiefs of staff and its and its historical um, keeping a quorum of you know all of their military officers, keeping them going and keeping them active and keeping them in the loop. We don't have that in Britain anymore. Now, one thing that's really brilliant is because yesterday, Anne Widdicombe in the interview talked about, when we were talking about defence policy, that Britain disarmed effectively the the full disarmament process in Britain started in 1981. Okay. now, if we're saying that that the Soviet Union Collapsed or stopped? Well, it didn't. It just changed. It changed into something else. That's the way you should look at it. It didn't stop. It didn't finish. It just changed. We disarmed in 1981, but that the Soviet didn't didn't change until 1989. But we'd already disarmed. So that needs to let everybody know just what the what the sort of you know where this modern all means hybrid warfare is going in these proxy states, which is what's happening there in Armenia, uh, Armenia and uh, and Nagorno Karabakh, and so on. You know, and yes, you're quite right, Pat. There is a huge potential for this to escalate because if people keep pushing more and more, act- uh, you know, uh, uh, second and third sort of uh, tier actors in there, it can only probably go one way. And especially if somebody gets gets hold of, you know, some WMD, it'll it'll escalate rapidly. It's very worrying. It's very concerning. Um, and what are we looking at? You were looking at some kind of Vietnam on the eastern neighbourhood of the European Union.
0: Well, uh, indeed. And of course, uh, uh, Syria didn't work.
1: No, they, they lost Syria. Yeah. The West effectively lost in Syria. Too, but they, they're not giving up. They don't give up so yeah. easily. They can pick up Syria later if they want. But, so this is a new front that started. So let's, let's get into, let's stay on Boris. Let's stay on Al. Let's stay on now but let's talk about irony because irony is something that has been completely defeated uh in the era of covid so let's bring back irony and appreciation for irony here's a story that i like uh, looking back in 2018 boris johnson faces criticism over the burqa letterbox jibe. everybody remembers this if they remember when boris was in the cabinet he remarked that uh, Muslim women wearing the burqa were like letter boxes, basically, and we, sh- we can't have that in Britain. We can't have letter boxes, said Boris. And the irony of this is just too much. Let's go look at his statements, Mike, and let's just kind of look back at what Al Johnson said at the time. He said, "If you tell me that the burqa is oppressive, then I am with you, said Boris or Al back in 2018. And he goes on, and it gets more interesting. Uh, if you say that it is weird and bullying to expect women to cover their faces, then I totally agree, said Al Johnson back in 2018. Now just just remark and remember what's being said here. It's very interesting and relevant to today. So he said it was bullying to ask women to cover their face. And I would add that I can find no scriptural authority for the practice in the Quran. This is Boris the Cleric talking at the time. Al Kamal. this is Al Johnson talking at the time. And then he goes on to say, I would go further and say that it is absolutely ridiculous that people should choose to go around looking like letterboxes, said Al Johnson at the time when he was foreign secretary. So he's, he's really just oh, totally out of sorts, Mike, about this, you know, having women, forcing women to look like letterboxes in Britain. And Boris was outraged at the time. Of course, the media attacked him viciously for these comments. And so in in terms of the government policy, how this stands, businesses and government agencies should be able to enforce a dress code that allowed them to see customers' faces. That was the big controversy back in 2018. And oh, how times have changed. So such restrictions are not quite the same as telling a free-born adult woman what she may or may not wear in a public place when she is simply minding her own business. Uh Does that sound familiar in 2020? He seems to have reversed his position. Well, it does seem like that, Mike. So what we're saying here at the UK column is think about what we've seen in just the last six months. And what we're saying is, isn't it ironic? Isn't it absolutely ironic that it would be Boris Johnson that would turn Britain into a nation of letterboxes. Isn't that just absolutely ironic?
0: Uh, It absolutely is. Uh, But if we can just uh, be a bit uh, more serious about uh, uh, masks for one second. Uh, Here is an article from ResearchGate. uh, Masks, False Safety and Real Dangers, Part 1. Now... This is quite interesting because we've talked about in the past number of months about the potential for hypoxia, hypercapnia. So hypoxia is uh, reduced uh, uh, oxygen intake, hypercapnia, increased hypercapnia, increased uh, carbon dioxide in the blood. Uh, But what hasn't been discussed until now, as far as I'm aware, is the potential to be ingesting and inhaling Uh, fibres from the masks themselves. Uh, So what is this saying? There is no biological history of mass masking until the current era. It's important to consider possible outcomes of this society-wide experiment. The consequences to the health of individuals is as yet unknown. Mm -hmm masked individuals have measurably higher inspiratory flow than a non-masked individual. So in other words, we are breathing harder to try and get the oxygen in than we would normally breathe in. And uh, the the, uh, scientific paper here says this study is of new masks removed from the manufacturer packaging as well as a laundered cloth mask examined microscopically. Loose particulate was seen on each type of mask. Also tight and loose fibers were seen on each type of mask. If every foreign particle and every fiber in every face mask is always secure and not detachable by airflow, then there should be no risk of inhalation of such particles and fibers. However, even if a small portion of mask fibers is detachable by inspiratory flow, uh, or if there is debris in mask manufacture or packaging or handling, uh, then there is the possibility of not only entry of foreign material into the airways but also entry into deep lung tissue and potential pathological consequences of foreign bodies bodies in the lungs and of course this is not a peer-reviewed paper yet it's uh, still up for peer review so we don't know what the final outcome is that going be, of that is going to be uh, and there's still more research required but the key point here as we've been stressing for so many weeks and months now is that there has been no risk assessment done by governments, by local authorities, by anybody, on the risks of wearing masks in the way that we're wearing these masks. Um, and uh, what are we looking at here, Patrick? Potentially, uh, in the future, uh, a, a you know uh, serious lung problems, potentially cancer from having ingested uh, quantities of small fibers. Um, I think we've seen this type of thing before, haven't we?
1: Well, you're talking about uh, artificial fibers, uh, petroleum-based products, various different, you know, microscopic elements that are not healthy uh, when they're embedded in your soft lung tissue. Uh, So this isn't a normal situation. Normally, you know, surgeons wearing cotton masks and things like that, organic material. Now you've got a whole range of just about anything goes in terms of masks so this really speaks mike to the ridiculousness of the 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 rollout of the mask culture and the mask industry uh, on the back of covid uh, and the fact that nobody's even questioning you know if there's any safety A a lot of people remarked in a lot of reports mike they're feeling nauseous a feeling of nausea Uh, when they're wearing masks for long periods of time. And one of the reasons is they're breathing in synthetic fibers constantly. And this is inducing a feeling of nausea. I mean, this is like common sense medical 101. I mean, why isn't anybody picked up on it? But right now the mainstream media are absolutely determined pushing uh, the mask mandate, pushing mask culture, uh, basically backing uh, a government policy on this. to me, doesn't look like it's intelligent whatsoever. They're not listening to the best possible science.
0: Yeah, indeed. So uh, I'm just going to say one word: asbestosis. Now, do I know that wearing of masks is any way similar to working in an environment where you've got asbestos dust? Of course not. But government doesn't know either, and this is the key point. We've got to start keeping. We've got to keep the pressure on to get some proper risk assessment done before uh, th- this becomes a long term. Uh, requirement. And I mean, what, if if, yeah. if what scientists are saying, uh, and I think it was at UCL, I can't remember exactly who it was, was saying that don't expect uh, a vaccine in March to be some sudden uh, boon, which means that we're going to be able to take the masks off. It could be two years. If people are going to be required to wear masks for this length of time, uh, and particularly people that are working in retail outlets and so on that are required to wear them for eight hours a day in, in the store that uh, this has the potential to have a massive uh, impact on people's health.
1: So I can just see the stories coming out in two years' time, like, oh, if only we had noon at the time. It will yeah. be in the Telegraph on the front page. Dangers of wearing masks has caused a new epidemic of X, whatever it is. I mean, I can just see the media doing their usual sort of after-the-fact coverage on this. And oh, the shock and the outrage. Once again, the cure is worse than the disease. Absolutely. Now, uh,
0: just uh, quickly to end then, uh, well, here is uh, Ursula Ursula von der Leyen. It's off the court that we go, uh, is what her message was yesterday. Uh, EU began legal proceedings against the UK. This is because of the uh, internal market bill. Uh, and the demand by the eu to uh, to to make changes to that bill before it goes through any further through parliament uh, the deadline that the eu set was ignored by the british government and so they sent a letter of formal notice uh, and of course well the question is which court uh, of course they're going to take out, to take the uk to the european court of justice which i think we'll find was exactly the one of the reasons that the uk government was given for, giving for leaving the eu in the first place not no longer to be under the auspices of the european Court of Justice. Here's what she said. Uh, The internal market bill is a full contradiction of the previous UK commitments over hard border on the island of Ireland should be avoided. Now, uh, lots of uh, comment under uh, Ursula's tweet on her Twitter feed. Things like, uh, how have the EU ended up here taking what should be their closest geostrategic ally to court? Uh, Why bother anymore? Let the British tremendously suffer in complete isolation and denigration. They chose it, is another comment. Uh, Brits should not be trusted, is another comment, and so on. And so it goes on. Uh, Now, but the the key thing is that most of this, and David, I'm gonna ask you to comment on this just to close the programme. Most of this, to my mind, is pure posturing over the current negotiations on the future relationship. Uh, We're currently in the ninth round of those Uh, here is, uh, here are the two key uh, negotiators, um, Mr Frost on the left, or Lord Frost on the left, and uh, Michel Barnier on the right. Uh, uh, the news seems to be good. They seem to be making progress. So, David, it seems to me, uh, and in fact, we've got Boris and Ursula having a, a telephone conversation today to, to nail out some of the of the remaining problems. So, David, it does seem that, that this court case and this is is just... Positioning as part of a negotiation, an ongoing negotiation, and really we probably need to give it a good ignoring.
3: Oh, if the, well, the acid test or the litmus test with this will be is if the British government engages with this court action of the EU doing it in their own court in the EU, then everything's a load of nonsense, isn't it? Because the British government doesn't want to engage with this at all because if we're leaving, then they have no jurisdiction over us at all. So not interested, do what you want, disengage. You know. But if the, if the British government engages with this, it'd be a clear warning to everyone that we're not leaving.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, we'll, we'll leave it. Yeah, we'll have to leave it there for today because we're right out of time. Uh, thank you very much, Patrick, for being with us today. Thank you, David, as well. Uh, we will be back at the same time on Monday, 1pm, as usual. Hope everybody has a great weekend and we will see you then. Bye-bye.